Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. What a blessing to praise the Lord together in song and that he delights to hear our voice. Think of that passage in Song of Solomon where he's like, oh, my dove, come away. And he's just, he calls out to us and he loves it when we cry out to him and praise him. Uh, One announcement, we will have the AGM following the service, so 20 minutes, half an hour afterwards after you've had tea and coffee and whatever goods are unavailable. And thanks to those who bring stuff. It's really a blessing because these things aren't fully organized, but people have it on their heart to share and to, to bless one another. And it's great to see the love of Christ and his generosity on display in his people. So thanks for that. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the power of Jesus Christ, that he is risen. He is our king. He is my king. And thank you that he is sovereign over all and good and glorious and delights to draw near to us as we seek your face, as we praise your name. And Lord, draw near to us even now as we draw near to you in faith, desiring to hear your voice, wanting to do your will, and wanting to change according to your will. Thank you that you do change us, you transform us by the renewing of our mind and that the, the, water, wash it, the water of the word washes us as it purges out those, that wrong thinking and the, those attitudes, it, it uh, washes them away. It shows us that we have a, a terrific, terrible need for you and that you're able to meet that need uh, by your grace. And so I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this time to read your word together. We pray that you would move in our midst and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 4. That's where we'll begin. When I went to soccer training as a kid, I know some of you have or are still playing soccer. Uh, My team was never keen to run laps, to, to do sprints, to do drills. While we were doing those things, we were always kind of complaining and asking to scrimmage. Like there were things that our team liked doing and it was the easy, fun things. We liked it when the ball was just sitting in front of the goal, really close, nice big goal, and just the goalie in front of us so we could kick a goal. We'd never get a chance like that in the game, so we liked having a go at something fun. And uh, when we were doing these drills, we're like, yeah, can we scrimmage now? No, you gotta do, and so we would end up scrimmaging in the end, but because we didn't focus on our discipline, we didn't work on our footwork or a plan, like we didn't really have a plan of attack when the game started, We weren't a very good team. We didn't learn to work together. The foundation was not laid. And uh, it would have been a lot more fun at the end of the season to hoist the trophy as champions rather than um, like win the games that matter, not just in training. Like that's so true about the Christian walk as well that we, we don't always like the training. It's work, it's painful. If you've ever done long-distance running or something that requires a lot of effort, we, we would rather not do that. We'd rather do something easy. We'd rather just take a tablet and get really thin and buff rather than having to work in the gym or get up earlier, change in some way, change what we eat. The writer of Hebrews has established by this point that Jesus is God in the flesh He is our great high priest who has accomplished the work and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
He's made obsolete the law of Moses as a means of obtaining righteousness and favor with God. And without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please him, that we must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And chapter 11 was full of examples of people who by faith did extraordinary things because God was with them. God helped them. They were able to win battles. They endured great persecution. And the worst torments that man could or the devil could throw at them, they overcame through the power of Jesus Christ. And by faith in God, they were enabled to persevere, to get through. They looked to the reward. Jesus provides an example. He provides empowerment to reach his desired end. And Hebrews 12.3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. As we consider Christ, we think, I've never suffered like he has. And he suffered for me. He paid my fine, my penalty. And his suffering, because it's greater than I could ever have, and he still has comfort, he still has joy, then we look to him to supply our needs. Continuing in Hebrews 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as, son, as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The Hebrews had not been physically crucified for their faith in Christ. Uh, doubtless they found the present trials and persecution difficult. It's one thing, many people were punished for their faith. They were beaten. Their blood was shed. But the point here is, you have not resisted to bloodshed against sin. Jesus, we're not called to, to punish ourselves for our sin, like the, uh, those who would flog themselves, because Jesus has paid that fine. He has atoned for our sin. His blood has already been shed. The justice of God has been satisfied. Jesus took the sins upon, of the world upon himself so we could be uh, atoned for and trust him. And his work on Calvary is sufficient. And the writer says, you have forgotten. You have forgotten the exhortation that was written in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 and in their pain, in their weariness, and in the trial, they imagined God was punishing them for their sin. Maybe like Christians today who are facing trials and they figure Satan is attacking us. Satan is against us. And if, or they have this view, if Satan's buffeting me, well then I must be doing something right. And almost get a sense of pride in, in the trial that they're going through. And they like the idea of being in a spiritual battle and it goads them on to like, when I feel resistance, well, I'm going to push back against that. I'm going to oppose that because um, God is for me. Who can be against me? But the same can forget that they are beloved children of God who've been adopted by him. That they're not just soldiers fighting a battle, but they're children who've been adopted into his family and God chastens them as beloved children. Imagine that we would see chastening by God as an attack of Satan. When God can use that, that trial, like Job, Satan wanted to destroy Job, but God used it to chasten him and correct him, to order his mind and get him to say, man, when I look upon you, God, I put my hand upon my mouth. I am vile. 
He was able to see God differently and himself differently in light of God's glory because of the suffering he went through. And Solomon urged his son, don't despise the chastening God. Don't be discouraged by his rebukes. That word chastening, it means tutoring, education, or training. By implication, disciplinary correction, instruction, or to nurture. That's chastening. God's chastening of his children is not punitive, as in punishment for sin. Punishment for a past offense. You can think of punishment as payback. You have done the wrong thing in the past, so now you must suffer pain now. That's punishment. But God chastens. He disciplines. Punishment is looking back to the past and saying someone needs to pay with pain. But discipline is all about correcting someone so that they'll move forward in doing the right thing in the future. It's corrective. It's nurturing. Now, punishment, it can spring among people from irritation or annoyance or anger. But God's is through love and the good of people. That's why he chastens us. It says, scourges the son he loves. Now, scourging is a very strong word. To be scourged, to be flogged. But it's for a purpose, his good purposes. So knowing the difference between punishment and discipline that could employ the same blows, the heart of it is totally different. One is a vengeful anger. The other that, uh, and so this is towards God's children. Of course, he will punish the wicked because they have not repented. They have not been atoned for. Their sin remains. But those who have been born again, those whose sins have been washed clean, past, present, and future, through the blood of Jesus, it is no longer punishment for sin, but chastening that we endure. And so don't hate that. Don't despise that when it's administered by a loving God for our good. Spurgeon said this, While he shall never be arraigned before God's bar as a criminal and punished for his guilt, yet he now stands in a new relationship, that of a child to his parent, and as a son he may be chastised on account of sin. The Bible says that he who hates his son spares the rod. He who loves his child will chasten. During this life, we'll never be beyond the need for chastening and correction. And God uses other people. He uses situations and difficulties as part of that chastening process to correct us, to instruct us, to get our attention. That's something pain does. It's like when I'm walking and there's a, a stone in my shoe and I walk and I'm like, ow! And I can keep saying, ow, and walking on it, but the pain, it gets me like, I need to take my shoe off. I need to investigate the source of this and then to remove the, the stone so I can walk forward without pain, right? It gets our attention, and God will do that. We, we naturally, speaking for myself, we, we like to uh, push back against the idea that we could even be wrong and that we need to change first. But God, he is patient with us. So instead of beating ourselves up, lashing out at others, giving up when we're rebuked, corrected or criticized, let's rejoice in the Lord who chastens those he loves and he scourges those whom he receives. He takes responsibility for us because we're his. He's adopted us. Continuing in verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers... 
then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." By faith in God, we're empowered to endure chastening, to grow in maturity. Now, no father among us, no dad is without fault. We're blessed to have God as our perfect father. And don't think that a perfect father will for a moment laugh at the disobedience of his children when they lie, when they do what is foolish, because he knows that will destroy them. And so he will correct them. He will instruct them. His relationship with us is founded on his love for us. It can't shrug up what will destroy us. It's like, ah, it's just funny. Kids. He's like, this kid is going to grow up into a teenager and grow up into a man or a woman. And so I want to direct that lovingly in the right way. Even men after God's own heart fall short. David's an example of this. We can't blame David for the behavior of his son Adonijah, but the Bible makes a definite connection between David's reluctance to rebuke him and the sinful pride of Adonijah and his, his, sin, his sinful choices later in life. If you turn in 1 Kings to chapter 1, verse 5, we read what happens when David was getting old in age and uh, it was time for a king who could bear the weight of rule. David wasn't even able to keep his body heat at that time. So if you can't stay warm in bed, then it's probably good to have someone else wear the throne and govern the nation. 1 Kings 1 verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. So David never pulled up Adonijah when he was a kid about the things that he did. He never said, why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? As a prince, Adonijah is thinking, I can do as I like. I want to be king. He didn't talk to his father, who was the king, and it was in violation of the revelation of God that Solomon, his brother, would be king. But he said, I will be king. And so he gathered some people together who would support him to get what he wanted. He exalted himself. He took after a lot more after Absalom, his brother, than David, his father. Verse 9, it says, we had human dads who corrected us. We paid them respect. And you may not have had the blessing of a close relationship with the Father. But don't allow your bad experiences to taint or corrupt the view of God who is the good Father, who is the one who loves us and cares for us perfectly, as revealed in Scripture. The point is, we have all received correction at times by people we respected. Okay, there's people we've respected, you've respected in your life, who have corrected you, and it was appropriate. You realize, okay, this is a person I respect, this is a teacher, a boss, someone that I want to obtain what they have, I want to know what they know, I want to go beyond where they are, and so I'm going to submit to their correction, and actually want their correction, so I'll be better at what I want to do, or what I want to accomplish. 
You were willing to endure rebuke because you knew you were wrong. How much more should we honor and respect God? Right? He is our Father, and He loves us, and He is God. Years ago, I worked for a company. He had an apprentice who was showing up to work late, had a bad attitude, and the boss said, well, I've got to do something. We don't, he could have been fired for insubordination. It was in the contract. But he's saying, we want to invest in this guy. We want uh, to develop him. We're willing to invest time and resources to make him a better worker. So you're suspended for a week. But he took it as a, he's being rewarded with a holiday. He, he didn't understand, like, this is chastening. This is corrective. If you want to work here, you need to change. And he's like, man, I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to go on a trip. And wow, what a great company. He didn't get it, and he didn't stay working. Brothers and sisters, do you know when God's chastening you? Do you recognize when he is at work to correct and instruct you in the way you should go moving forward, not just grieving over the past mistakes of your life? Do you, do you blame the devil for the things that are happening, or do you voluntarily subject yourself to God with the desire to please him? Are you willing to change course? If you've placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and your sins have been washed away, you're not being punished for your sins. What God allows is to chasten you for your good, those painful things that we just want to stop. God wants us to move beyond by faith in Him, to continue on. We can be rid of the idea that God is just looking to find fault with us and pounce on us at the first sight of sin to inflict pain for past wrongs because that's not how the Bible shows that he is because he, he has paid that price through Christ. Moses said in Numbers, and this is, a, this is a bit of a twist on the idea, Numbers 32, 23, that our sin will find us out. And sin has real life consequences. God said this in Jeremiah 2.19, Your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of God of hosts. He's saying your sin will correct you. I will use your own faults to rebuke you. So it can be sin that is the cause of this chastening and rebuke. I read of a former alcoholic who came to Christ and became a preacher. And because of his abuse of alcohol over the years, he had a weak stomach. And he said, you know, God gave me a new heart, but not a new stomach. Something I'm going to live with because of the choices of my past. But God has redeemed that. God is using that. And uh, God uses, he gives us these reminders. There's, I, there are injuries I have on, in my body that... I can remember when it happened, and I remember that it was a sinful outburst of anger that was behind it, or pride that was behind it, and every time you feel that, it's like, ah, oh, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, he is a redeemer, that I'm not disqualified because of my own folly in my past, but he, he has a future for me. That's why he's correcting me, because he loves me, and he wants to be with me forever. He wants me to walk in holiness, as we'll see. Our parents, they did the best they could in directing us. They did what was, they thought at the time was best, and sometimes because they were annoyed, because they were embarrassed, 
not with the perfect motives that God corrects us with because he is righteous and he loves us to our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. That's the end that God's working towards. It's not just to straighten us out. It's not just to teach us a lesson. It's that we would walk in holiness moving forward. We would be like him. Have you ever noticed the connection between discipline and disciple? The idea of being a disciple is a follower who is going to submit to the discipline of the teacher. The one who's willing to respond to that correction, he's the one who's under that teaching. The one who refuses it, well, it's not really a disciple. If we do not submit to the discipline and the chastening of Christ, we're really no different than the children of Israel in the Old Testament in the book of Judges who did what was right in their own eyes. And we read about some of the things they did, like Micah, stealing, cursing, making images, ordaining his own priests in the hope that God will do me good. If I do the things I think are right, God's going to bless me. But it's holiness God desires. That's why he chastens. And since we've chosen to follow Jesus, we need his guidance, we need his correction to do it. Hebrews 12, verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. We can make the mistake of uh, thinking Punish, uh, chastening is punishment because it's painful. If, I'm, if I am in pain, I must be being punished. Chastening does hurt. It does sting. Now, I, I, as a kid, I never looked forward to a swat, even when I deserved it, when I knew that I had done the wrong thing and it had been discussed what happens when we disobey mom and dad. I just wanted it over. And I remember talking to kids and, hey, people are the same everywhere. I assume it's You've known people like this, or maybe you were the one who knew if, if they were going to get a swat, they'd put on some extra clothes, you know, to take the sting out of it. They were looking to get out of the painful aspects of chastening. You know, try to put a book in there or something so that they didn't have to feel the pain. It wasn't pain to be avoided. It was pain to receive and learn from. That was the purpose of it, that you would walk differently because of the thing, uh, the correction that was given in a loving and appropriate manner. Chastening is painful, but what's the result? It says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training. Soccer training. There is a clear correlation. If you do not train, you do not win. You do not play well. Your fitness goes down. You need conditioning. You need to go back to those fundamentals, the, the basic principles of the game and teamwork, having a plan, listening to your coach. I had a theater teacher in a primary school. He was very flexible. I was so impressed that this big guy could he literally turn his feet backwards. Whoa. And he said, well, I was ballet trained as a boy. And our teacher would walk around with a stick. And she would have us hold a pose. And if, she, if we weren't doing it right, you know, whack. He would get the whack of the stick. 
And uh, thinking the kids kept coming back because they wanted to be ballet dancers. They wanted to be the best, and this teacher only took those she thought had a, a chance to succeed at the highest level. And, but, but she didn't carry the stick outside the studio. She didn't whack the salesman because she didn't like that price. She wants a better price on her insurance. Or she didn't whack the politician because I don't, dis- I don't agree with that policy. You know, No, it was just for a reserved group of people to make them the best. Now, I'm not saying that this is the way that ballet should be taught. It's just a story I heard as a kid. But the fact is, it was discipline that people were willing to subject themselves to because there was an end they wanted. Do we want to be holy? Where he says, be holy because I am holy. Be like me, Christian. Be like Christ, believer. You, want to, you call yourself a disciple, will you submit to his discipline? Not saying, well, look at her, look at him, what he's doing. Are you willing to submit to his discipline? Are you willing to receive that correction so that you will do differently in the future? Praising him for caring enough to correct. God is so good that he causes the peaceable fruit of righteousness to come out of pain and to come out of our mistakes. I mean, so many mistakes in life seem without redemption, but our God is great. He is awesome, and his love, what will separate us from his love? Nothing. Instead of giving up or fainting because of the pain of being chastened, we're to strengthen our hands, we're to continue doing good. When I played piano for six years as a kid, I didn't lift weights with my fingers to strengthen them. I strengthened them and gained dexterity by playing piano, by practicing every day. Practicing every day, And once a week, I would have lessons with a a tutor who would watch me, who would adjust my posture, who would say, your timing's off. You need to strike that key stronger at this point. We're strengthened when we do things as we ought, when we are following the training that God is giving us. Verse 13, it says, to make straight paths for your feet. Literally, that's wheel tracks, wheel tracks for your feet. I like what the prophet said in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. God had made plain the way people were supposed to live. He gave them his law. But people weren't willing to obey him. And when things got difficult, they're like, well, this way isn't working. And he's like, well, you're not walking in the way. When a wagon, when a car, when a dog, we had a dog in our backyard and he had this circuit. He would just, I was a little neurotic. He would go outside and he'd run to the left and he'd run around. And after a while I noticed, man, there's like a furrow in the grass just because he's run this same course over and over and over. Maybe we need to take him outside this yard, give him a little bit more space. But when you have a car that's going over a grass area over and over, what does it do? It makes wheel tracks so someone else could follow. Well, that good old way, it leads us to Jesus. In the beginning of Hebrews 12, we're told to cast off weights and sins and look to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're to follow Christ in the example he set for us. You Think about how Jesus lived. He rose early to pray. He was well-versed in the scripture. 
He spoke the truth in love. He, he always did the will of the Father. He was the servant of all. That should be our routine. Following Jesus, doing the things he did, ought to be our routine in walking in holiness. He's shown us the way when he was hated, when he was rejected, when he was forsaken and betrayed, how he loved and he forgave. Determine what you will do before the temptation comes. Like, like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make holiness habitual, looking to that good end result with joyful expectation. And what's lame about us, God will heal and restore in his good time and way. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears." We are called to live as much as depends on us, peaceably with others, not full of malice or animosity. Having received that perfect peace from Christ, we are to pursue peace with all people, as well as holiness, that purity. And that's what holiness means, purity found in God alone. Now, while it's true that the unholy will forever be separated from God, in context, this is not talking about losing any sort of salvation. It's saying that uh, choosing to sin will cut us off from fellowship with God. The prodigal, he was out of contact with his father because he chose to go to that faraway land. He went away from his father. He was still his father's son, but he was away from him. And he wasted his inheritance. And, but when he came back to the father in repentance, his father ran to him and received him and blessed him. We are made positionally righteous and justified by faith in Jesus Christ we're also exhorted to walk holy and purely because he is holy. We're sanctified by God. We're set apart as his children. Thus, we sanctify ourselves by living lives that are marked by holiness. 1 Peter 1.13, it says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who, has, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, on your con, in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We were once cut off from God. We were children of the devil, full of lies and deceit and hatred, but now we've been born again. We've been adopted into the family of God, purged of our sins, and so we ought to live in a holy manner, being filled with the Holy Spirit and bearing that fruit. This exhortation to live in a godly way, in a holy way, is for each of us to take personally. We all need correction. Think about a turf, a field of turf. You guys have some turf in your yard. It needs to be watered, mowed, fed, weeded, and our hearts need even more attention than this. When we don't see that the seeds that have been sown until they begin to sprout. And it's like, I'm battling this clover in my lawn right now. I have that selective stuff that I'll spray. 
and uh, it, it gets some of it. But because my lawn is pretty patchy, it doesn't have like good sunlight all the time. And I found that the, the best defense against weeds is a healthy lawn. And if the lawn is all filled in, man, the weeds are very rare and they're easy to pull. But when you have a lot of patchiness, that's an opportunity for those weeds to come up. And you don't see them until they grow, until they manifest themselves, right? That field of turf, when you see those weeds sprout, it's like this. When bitterness crops up in your life, it shows a lack of grace. That's a graceless area of your life where there's bitterness. Colossians 3.19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Now, it doesn't matter why you feel bitter. Bitterness, it's an unjustified, poisonous sin that will corrupt others. And it has to be dealt with by ripping it out by the root. It's not good enough. Like me, sometimes I fully admit it. I don't always want to pull the clover out or the weeds, and so I'll just mow them. And I'm like, well, at least they're not going to propagate too much by, by uh, seeding anywhere. But, but it's still there, and that root's like getting stronger. You must be willing to, when it comes to sin, comes to bitterness, we need to root it out, remove it from our lives, and not justify it anymore because of the pain we've endured. Bitterness, it's, it's personal offense that's taken root in a graceless heart. And should we recognize bitterness rather than love or compassion or kindness, we need to pull it up in repentance. And if you have a lawn that's all one kind, you need to examine it carefully because it all looks green. And you go, well, what's this? What's that? This is a different kind of grass. That's got to go. That'll come in and choke out the good grass. But that's not the end. Pulling out the root. Great, you've done that. But allow the grace of God and the gospel to fill that space. Have the grace of God grow in your life in that space that's been filled with bitterness until now. And we don't know it until it comes out by the things we say and how we feel, how we respond. Now, the poster child of bitterness for us here, the example given, is that of Esau, older twin of Jacob, born to Isaac and Rebekah. He was the firstborn, so he would traditionally receive the birthright. That meant double inheritance, and the family line would pass through him. It was a responsibility to carry on the family name. They were both circumcised, uh, Jacob and Esau. They were both raised in their parents' house. They were exposed to the truth of God. Jacob takes a lot of flack for his name, meaning supplanter or heel catcher. But what does this say about Esau, that he was a profane person and a fornicator. He was first a fornicator in a spiritual sense. That leads to sexual immorality. See, we go, oh, I, I need to stop with this lust. Well, it's really a, a spiritual adultery that's taken place before the physical adultery. Remember when Isaac, Esau's dad, was getting, he was 40 years old. And his dad went and said, he, needs to, he cannot marry a woman of this land. He needs to marry one of our people. So sent his, his servant to his family's house and found Rebekah. And she came back. When he was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. Isaac did. You know what Esau did when he was 40 years old? He went and married two women of the land. He was not like his father. 
who, who sur- submitted to his dad to marry the woman that they brought to him. He chose his own and two of them. It says this in Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Ilan, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So it starts with him not honoring God, and then he's not honoring his parents. He marries idolatrous women of the land, and profane, that means against the temple, which means irreverent, secular, obscene, in opposition to holiness. So his attitude and his actions, they are a sign of something more sinister that would come out later. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. Genesis 25, 29. And we see the passage where Esau despised or hated, rejected his own birthright. Genesis 25, 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It wasn't by chance that Esau was born first, but he rejected, he refused the responsibility God had given him, the gift of being the firstborn, the gift of receiving this birthright. He treated as nothing, as, as valuable as a pot of stew that you will eat and eliminate in a day. He sought to satiate his flesh. He was hungry. He was weary. And he traded that. He sold it for something so temporary just to avoid a little discomfort because he despised his birthright. He hated it. He was embittered. The big issue was Esau's carelessness concerning God and his rebellious, self-serving heart. He didn't acknowledge his responsibility to obey God or even his parents and just said, you know, what's that to me? It's not worth anything to me. And he treated it as rubbish. Let's not think that we can be so ungrateful or stupid because he is the example given to us. He's like, you can be like this. And we go, no, no, I'd never be like that. Esau, he despised and sold his birthright, but later he desired a blessing from his father. Even the profane are pleased to receive something good for free if they can get it. While Esau's away uh, getting venison, Uh, Jacob went in disguise with Rebekah, his mother's help, and he was blessed by Isaac. And if you turn forward to Genesis 27, verse 34, it tells us what happened when Esau found out that it was Jacob who had been blessed and not him. Genesis 27, 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. 
And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Disappointment exposed Esau's bitterness. Bitterness towards God. Bitterness towards his brother. When Job suffered the loss of all his children and possessions in a day... In profound grief, he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Esau's like, but what about me? Plays the victim, doesn't even admit that he sold it and swore to give it away. He says, he took it from me when he offered it to him. He said, okay, yeah, it's worth a bowl of soup. He's kind of like a thief who cries bitterly when he's caught rather than being broken and repentant over the crimes and saying, I will pay back what I have stolen. Now, you think as a child of God, we have such an awesome birthright. You, as a Christian, think of the birthright you have through Christ. You've been called and chosen by God as his adopted children, co-heirs with Christ. Through the gospel, you've been forgiven of your sin. Atonement's been made. You have fellowship with God. You can know God. You can say, I know God, and it's true because he's revealed himself to you and he's given you his word. Our eyes have been opened to the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, the wisdom in his scriptures. We have all these exceedingly great and precious promises that he's given us in his word, salvation from hell, a glorious future in heaven, fellowship with him and with one another right now. Through you, other lost souls can be brought to the knowledge of the truth. They can be saved. And his goodness and uh, the gospel can spread to others. I mean, how awesome is that? That the birthright can pass through you to others, that they would know Christ, that they would be forgiven. And we've received grace. All that pertains to life and godliness. Think of some of the trades that have been given. Are you willing to trade even one of those blessings for a meal? Are you willing to trade one of those blessings for 30 pieces of silver? How about two talents of silver? Fame, drink, sex. What are you, is there any of those that you could put a price on and say, oh, I'll exchange this for that? And frankly, we can treat our birthright and blessings from God like junk at a council cleanup. And we don't value it like we should. Like, I'm kind of done with that put it out. Maybe someone else would want that. I, I have no use for it anymore. Because we're bitter over what's happened. Because we're disappointed life hasn't turned out like we wanted. And so we're not going to walk in the thing that he has provided by his grace. And we justify bitterness rather than ripping it out and saying, Lord, help me grow in grace. Walk in holiness. So believer, are you bitter? We can be bitter because of pain, disappointment, chastening by God, feeling wronged and cheated because we lack grace. The Lord's given us a way to root out that bitterness, to grow in grace, to have that turf in our hearts kind of fill in a bit, to prevent some of that bitterness from growing. But when it starts springing out, I don't care how good your lawn is, in spring... The weeds will grow. It's not a new path that God tells us to walk on that he hasn't revealed yet. 
Those old wagon tracks in Jeremiah 6 that promised rest for our souls. And that's promised in Jeremiah 6. It directs us to Christ. Turn to the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 and see how it compares to Jeremiah 6, 16. Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Crying those bitter tears, it doesn't empty you of bitterness. It's only Jesus that can remove that from you. And by his grace, he heals us. By walking in that grace, uh, we recognize his chastening. Where we used to think it was just the devil attacking us, we're saying, God's for me, and I want to be trained by him. I want to submit to him, trusting him, knowing that it will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. How good is our God? How, how gentle and compassionate he is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example of scripture, and, and Lord, you search our hearts, you know that there in us, in our flesh, is no good thing. And thank you that you care enough about us to train us and correct us, that when we, we just want to scrimmage, we just want to have fun, you care enough to speak to us, to train us, to faithfully come alongside and say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and in me you will find rest for your souls. Lord, how we long for that rest. And thank you that there is a rest that's real, that's there for us through faith in Christ. And I pray we would enter into that rest, that there would be in us no root of bitterness, that we would recognize that and we would uh, confess it as sin, repent, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As his disciples, may we respond to his discipline and his correction and bless the name of our God, for you are great. You are holy. And thank you that you, uh, you are a redeemer. You are a restorer. And that we have an eternal hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would bring encouragement to the hearts of your people today through your word. That we would meditate upon it. That you would show us if there be any wicked way in us. And that we would walk in holiness, for you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.